Are we good to go, guys? Because I'm good. All right. I want you to do something. I'm excited. I'm telling you, this is going to be fun. All right. This is, I'm going to ask you one of these questions that you've heard, I don't know, a couple thousand times you've been a Christian for like five days. So it, it's one of these obvious questions. It's one of these questions that's so obvious that what happens is we have this Christianese way of answering it, and we don't actually think about it. We don't actually let it process and let it get on the inside to where we really think through what it really, what we really believe about it. So I'm going to ask you to do something today, and that is I want you to close your eyes right now, okay? I want you to close your eyes, and I'm going to ask the question, and you're going to have a first reaction, but then I want you to really think honestly, transparently, just between you and God. I want you to think about how does God see you? Is it, when you think of that, is your immediate response, you know, just pure white as the driven snow, utterly blameless, perfect? Is that the image that you get? Or is it maybe on the other end of the spectrum, is it more like, you know, there's just things that have happened that now that you really are standing right before the Lord and considering how he thinks about you, what you really would like to do is go run and hide in the bushes like Adam and Eve did. Because there's just a nakedness, there's an exposed, there's a thing that's going on. Now, if you don't know, the, keep your eyes closed. If you don't know the Lord, you, please close your eyes and play along because I just want you to, for a second, I want you to consider that there is a God, if there is a God, and then just consider what would he see you? Would he see you as being just every decision perfect, every morality thing, everything just right? Or would it be something less than that? How does God see you? Now, everybody has an image in your mind of how he sees us, and I'm sure some of you are playing theology with it and so on, but I just wanted, I'm asking you how you really think about it, and I want you to now imprint that image in your mind, whatever that is, okay, I don't care if it's the good Christianese one, or the, what, I want the one that's real, imprint that in your mind for a second, and hold on to that, and go ahead and open your eyes. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at how he sees us. And what I'm telling you is, this is one of those. We're just getting to something that's so obvious, and yet we just don't actually get it. And I think the reason why is because we don't know why. We know what we should think, but we don't think it because we don't know really why. It's right to think that way. That's what we're giving you today, the why of how to see yourself the way God does so that we can hold on to it. So having said that, our prayer today is Roger Maddox. Oh, awesome. Roger Maddox does a financial peace group. He does, he's an elder in the church. He does all kinds of things. Roger's amazing. Thank you, Roger, for praying for the sermon and lifting up another church. Thank you, God, for your grace, Lord. Thank you that you see us in amazing ways, Lord. Help us, God, to hear your voice today as, as Kurt speaks. Speak to us, God. Speak to our hearts. Tell us who we are in you. Reveal uh, truth to us today, God, and help us in our brokenness, in our weakness, to embrace truth and believe truth today, God, Thank you, Jesus. about you and about who we are in Christ. Amen. Thank you, Lord God. I just pray for uh, your anointing upon Kurt, that Thank you would God. give him your words to speak, and that, uh, that he would be out of the way of what it is that you want to do for each one of us today, Amen. God. Anoint him, God, in Jesus' name. And I just pray, God, for, uh, for Eastside Foursquare today, God. Amen. Uh, 
church in the Foursquare family that's doing wonderful things, God. Amen. We just pray your blessing upon them, on the teaching there, on the worship, God, that you would be honored and glorified there. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. I think the clock may have stopped. Thanks, guys. All right, so where we are, I don't think I have a clicker. Would you just click it from while you're bringing it up? What we, where we are is, is we're in our demystifying the book of Revelation, and uh, it's coming up in just one second. Thank you very much, Josh. Sorry. Thank you. Give a big hand to Josh. He's awesome. <laughs> okay. So demystifying the book of Revelation. Now, I, I just want to bring us up to speed with where we are in this book, and particularly a timeline, because it's going to become really important for the rest of what we're doing today. So here's, here's where we've been, and this is what we're looking at. Now, before this in chapters 1 and 2, see down at the bottom, chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. This is, the, this is the bulk. This is when most people think about Revelation. This is what they think about. There's letters before that. There's a scene in heaven. There's some other things. And there's a few things to come. But then let me say something. We're actually really close to the end. We're only at chapter 14. It goes further than that. But I'm just telling you, wait till you see. We're not actually that many weeks away from being done just the way that the thing lays out. And we've been doing the meat of this thing now for a little bit. And what we noted was is that starting at chapter 6, what happens is I only have the five of the six seals, but all six seals would be in this category right here. But what happens is we've, it's actually seven seals, but there's six of them that happen in chapter 6. And I really noted the fifth and sixth one because that's tribulation and martyrdom of Christians and so on. And this is all of this timeline, everything you see right here, this is history. Now, it's history that hasn't happened yet. But after it happens, it'll be, it is history. These are actual events the way that we see them. It doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. This is the history of the world that's just being told us beforehand. Okay, this is what it's going to look like when it gets to the end. These are the things that are going to happen, okay, in the world that anybody can see. No need to be a Christian to see them. So we've got, in chapter 6, six of the seven seals. Then we have 144,000 Jews that are sealed. We've got Christians being raptured. That's in an interlude. Then we have the seventh seal, which is six of the seven trumpets. And then what we've got is the trumpets, and these are increasing hardships, devastating things happening to the world. By the time we get to the end, a third of the world has died, okay? And then we get to the 70th week. See this, this marker here and this marker here? This is Daniel's 70th week. And at the beginning of it, we have the temple rebuilt. There's three and a half years where, where uh, the Jews are allowed to worship and the world is brought to a peace under the Antichrist and he's allowing it to happen. But at the midpoint, he stops that protection from happening. He's allowed now to kill the two witnesses and persecution breaks out against all the Jews that have come to the Lord in this time frame. See? And so now all of these people are being killed. And then the seventh trumpet sounds at the end of chapter 11. The seventh trumpet sounds, Jesus returns. Now that is history. Okay? That anybody can see literal in the material world, physical history. Then in chapter 12, what happens is, is that it's kind of like we, it's kind of God pulls back the veil to see the spiritual that's behind the physical material world. In other words, we've seen the history, but now God's going to show us the spiritual impulses that have been driving that history. And so we saw things like, just, you know, it explained things like the insanity of why was Hitler just so obsessed with killing Jews? Why did that happen? And what we see is a demonic influence that, by the way, was carrying out 
And so in chapters 12 and 13, we see the spirit that's behind the physical. Always remember something. The physical and the spiritual in our lifetimes right now are separated. See, in the garden, the spirit and the physical, the three dimensions that we have plus one, you know, it's height, width, depth. What what did I do? Anyway, height, width, depth, and time. Okay? And those are the dimensions that we got locked into after the garden. But before the garden, we were also operating in the spiritual dimension. Now, this isn't unscientific for me to say that. Scientists will tell you now. We recognize that we can only perceive four dimensions, but it's pretty clear to them more and more so that there are, in fact, other dimensions out there. And that's what we Christians have been saying all along. We've been saying there's a spiritual dimension, and in the garden, we perceived all of them. We could see God. But what happens is, is that after the garden, God wants to give people genuine free will. Could you choose to not believe in God if every morning you woke up and he was standing there? See, you couldn't not believe in him, right? So God is giving people absolute free will. This is so important for us to remember. He's given us absolute free will to where we can not only believe that we weren't created by him and all the other things the Bible says, but we can believe there is no God and there is no spiritual realm. We can believe that if we want because God has separated the spiritual from the physical. See that? So we, and we're only operating here in a tangible sense. Now we can sense what's going on here in a very real way. But nonetheless, we can't touch it. We can't take it out of the closet and show it to somebody. See? And so, and God's doing that so that we have genuine free will. And that's what's happening here. God is saying, here's the history that anybody can see, but I want to show you that there is, in fact, a spiritual dimension and that it explains things that have been happening in the physical. In fact, it's driving the things that are happening in the physical. So the spiritual is very much infusing, but in a way we can't perceive. And at chapter 14, which is the one that we're at today, this is what happens. We now start to get to a place to where the end is here, And the distinction between spiritual and physical is starting to disappear, meaning that the spiritual realm is starting to be perceived by the physical realm. They're starting to see it because we're coming to the very final moments and these things are coming. I mean, at some point in time, Christ returns. Christ in the, he's got a heavenly body, but Christ returns in the spirit, the angels and so on. This is a time at which the whole world sees the spiritual. Every knee bows. See what I mean? We see that it really was real after all. So what's happening in chapter 14, and by the way, I want to say something just for those who are genuinely, deeply theological. You don't have to agree with what I'm saying to get the point of today. And I could argue it a hundred different ways, but I'm just not going to bore us to death with that. I'm just, I'm just telling you something. If you will understand that by, in chapter 14, God is starting to let the spiritual be seen in the natural, you'll understand what's taking place in a richer and deeper way. You can, you can say, no, it's not true, but it, and it doesn't matter, but it's helpful to start to understand. And there's lots of reasons why I say that. I'll go into some of them today, but I, I don't, you know, that's not one I die on, Okay. It's not a hill that we're saying is absolute, but I think there's excellent reasons to understand that. And again, the flow of the book indicates that this is a time now where the spiritual and the physical, like it was in the garden, are coming back together in a way that the whole world can see. Okay? All right. Now, having said that, here we go. 
Then I looked, and there on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was also like harpists playing on their harps. Now, we're going to start with Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Where, where is Mount Zion? It's saying, when he says, I looked, see, a lot of times he'll go, I looked and in heaven, which means what? Spiritual realm. He looked and he saw into heaven. There's other times that he's seeing things on the earth. When he says, I looked here, it doesn't tell us if he's looking at heaven or not. And here's what I want to say. It's both. And here's why I say that. Mount Zion is clearly the way that Jerusalem, the physical city of Jerusalem, is, that's what it's called. When David first takes the city a thousand years before Christ, he overcomes the Jebusites in a fortress there on Mount Zion. And it becomes known as this fortress place. And it becomes symbolic of God and all of his power and all of his fullness and all of his ability. Okay? But really, you can refer to the city, the literal city of Jerusalem as Mount Zion. In fact, think about this. When the Jews returned to Israel, what were they called? Still to this day, Zionists. That's people who believe in the nation needing to be there because God gave it to them. That's what a Zionist is. See what I mean? They believe in the right of Israel to exist there because God gave it to them. Okay? And other people can argue that, but bottom line, when we're referring to Zion, we're referring to a physical place. But we're not just referring to a physical place, are we? Because very oftentimes, New Testament and Old, when Zion's being referred to, it goes into something like this. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. See that? And the countless thousands of angels in joyous, joyous gathering. See, now what's being said is, is there is a physical Jerusalem, and then there's a heavenly Jerusalem. Think about it this way. Here, here's the mistake that we make about the spiritual all the time. When you think of heaven, where do you think of it as being? I don't know, but it isn't right here. It's out there. Somewhere else, right? I mean, we've got spaceships to go up there, and we didn't find it up in space, so we understand it's other dimensional. But we still don't think of it as being right here. And that's a mistake. The truth is, the spiritual is right here. Jesus said, is it at hand? It's among you. We have many, many stories in Scripture that talk about the Spirit, but, but here's the one. I always do this, and somebody said, I never know what you're doing when you do that with your hand. So let me explain something that I do all the time. Imagine my hand being a completely, such a thin line that it cannot be perceived. It has no dimension to it. But it's, a, but it's a line with a, with a plane that goes out this way. And as I look at it, I cannot see that anything's there because there's no line that I can see. See that? But it's there, isn't it? Now, what happens is, if all of a sudden it goes like this, then I can see it. Because now I can see the plane. See that? So that's the spiritual realm. And we have story after story in Scripture of angels suddenly appearing. In fact, one of, my fun, the, one of the most fun ones is, is that Elisha is telling the secrets of the king to the Israelites so they can get away. And so the king that they're trying to get comes and says, I'm going to surround him with an army. So they wake up in the morning. Elisha's servant goes out of the tent and sees this army surrounding them and goes, we're toast, runs back in, tells Elisha. Elisha walks out and says this. Now listen, listen to the wording here. Then Elijah prayed, O Lord, open his eyes eyes. See? Let him see past the three dimensions plus one. Let him see the truth. Let him see 
the more substantive, the more important thing. Because when he does, he opens his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes. And when he looked up, he saw the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. So there was an army going to, to capture them. But all, and, he, and he doesn't see the other part. Now he sees it. And when he sees it, he's not worried anymore. <laughs> More force than a Guinness. See? All right. So that's how the spiritual works. And so when we talk about Mount Zion... I want you to, to process that it is, it's both referring to the physical place, Jerusalem, that we can, you could fly to right now, but it's also referring to the spiritual reality that is behind it, that's the more important thing, that's the lasting thing. This world actually goes away. The spiritual things don't. That's the more substantive thing. You got it? So when, when he's referring to Mount Zion and Jesus being on Mount Zion, what we're seeing is, is that there's this infusion, there's this moment of Christ by the seventh trump has been seen. He's on Mount Zion, the real Mount Zion. But there's something else that's going on too. And in fact, I think we get clued into it a little bit. This is only one of the many arguments I could make to this point. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was also like harpists playing on their harps. See, what's being said here is it's like, as it goes like this, all of a sudden, it's not just that we see it, it's we start to hear it. It's like the spiritual reality is now cascading into the material physical. See, it's starting and the rumbling and, and there's harpists and there's, there's all these noise. Everybody's like, where's that coming from? Oh, well, look, there's something more than it was right there, but now there's something more to it, and we're starting to perceive the something more of it. Okay? Now, what we want to note, what's really important for us today, with Jesus on Mount Zion were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Who are these people? Well, remember, we saw them back when. Okay? Look, in chapter 7, he's, when he... When he separates them out. He says, don't harm the land of the sea or the trees until we place the seal of God on their foreheads of the servants. See what I mean? So what he's saying is, is that there's a seal that's happening to them. They're getting a name placed on there. And this is this timeline. There's 144,000 Jews that are sealed. There's 144,000 over here. See it? So now look at what's happened in between here. Trumpets, the temple, persecution, all of this stuff is happening. These are Jewish people. This is the Jewish timeline. This is the Jewish 70th week. And all of this stuff is taking place. We've been raptured out over here. But this is still very much the world is happening and all this stuff. Okay. Now. The thing that we want to note is his name and his father's name are written on their forehead. You remember we, we just looked at the end of chapter 13 and what we saw was the Antichrist puts a mark on the forehead or the hand, chapter 13. So in chapter 7, we have God doing something. What we've been saying the Antichrist does is he imitates everything that God is doing so as to deceive. He does the same things. God even lets him do more incredible things so that people will get deceived. And this is, a, this is such an important principle for us to remember. We think to ourselves in this reality as it is right now, we think, you know, particularly if we don't believe in God, we think, well, I wouldn't choose to put the mark of God and I wouldn't choose to put the mark of the other one because we understood that the mark last time was not a compulsory mark. It was something that people chose. Yeah, you couldn't eat without it, but they chose it in love and in worship for the Antichrist who had brought peace to the world. See? 
So this was an act of worship. And the point is, God has orchestrated the end times in such a way as that every person will make a choice. There won't be anybody walking around with no marks. You will have either taken on the mark of the beast or you will have taken on the mark of God. One or the other, that's it. See? And everybody will have done that. So when we say that, what we're saying is, is these guys are being marked on their foreheads, which is an act of worship. Now, God's the one marking them. We're going to come back to this in a moment. But see, it's an act of worship. Okay, now, let's go to verse 3. I'm trying to build something here. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones not defiled with women. They've not, they've not, they have kept their virginity. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from the human race as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. We're going to take this apart and we're going to start with the end. How many of you would like to be called blameless? How many of you can? What does that mean? Understand what it means here. Unlike anybody in this room, Scripture says all have fallen short of the glory of God, all have sinned. Now, I'm assuming that that is true with these guys too, but do understand what's being said. Because with these 144,000, the level of their blamelessness in the physical realm is beyond what anybody's experiencing right now. There's not even a lie in their mouth. There's no deception in them whatsoever. No darkness. No lie. Blameless. Not just blameless in that way. Look at this. They're the ones not defiled with women, for they've kept their virginity. I love commentaries. I use them all the time. Thank God for them. Thank God for the smart people and all that kind of stuff that write them. I have to say this is one of those instances, again, where I go, man, you guys have just gotten too smart for your own good. Because they just keep arguing about, well, you know, people that get married, they're not defiled, right? They can have sex. They're not defiled by that, right? Let's get real about how God talks about it through Paul. Paul says something about it. We're not talking defilement in the sense of sin. We're just talking about, Paul says, look, it's better if you don't get married because you're not distracted. Then it's all about you and God. When I was writing scripts, and I wrote a bunch of scripts for theater, for television, for film. I wrote a whole bunch of scripts. But probably my favorite one, I think it was like seven pages. I tried to find it. I can't find it anymore. But it was this really delicate, short little piece. And it starts off before there's an Eve, and it's just Adam and God in the garden. And Adam is just talking with God, and God is the only other person there. And God is talking with Adam, and Adam's talking with God. And it's just, this, it's just all about God for Adam. And then think about it. God does something that he knows is going to be a negative for himself. God creates out of him Eve. And in this play, it just happens in a very subtle little way. But what happens is, is here is Adam who's all about God and everything else. And then God makes this one that is like him to help meet the mate. And, and he starts looking at her. And he is so thankful to God for her that he totally starts off as being nothing. But thank you for her. Thank you for her. Thank you. This is cool. <laughs> this is good stuff here. See what I mean? Wow, you're good. This is good. See? But then what happens is inevitably... 
It's not just God and Adam anymore, is it? All of a sudden, in the, in the play, in just subtle ways, Adam is refocusing on the Eve. At the very least, he's bifurcating, but in the play, it's, he's taking, and God's given him responsibility to do that, to, to, to take care of each other, Adam and Eve, right? So it's not bad that that happens, but it does unfocus us at the very least, right? So commentators are trying to say things about not being defiled, and it's not sin, and how could this, and, uh, but do we all just, can we all just be simple about this? Keep it simple, stupid. What's God trying to communicate? He's trying to say, these people have never been distracted in any way, shape, or form. This is, by the way, is one of those passages where monks get their, get their charge from. There's several others in Scripture, too. But this would be the impulse that is behind being a monk or a, or a nun. See what I mean? I'm going to be all about God. And Paul says, if God gifts you with that, good for you. That's what the word says. It doesn't mean you're horrible if you end up with a mate. That's a lot of fun and a lot of hard and a lot of everything else too. It's just, we all just recognize, don't we, that there is something that is totally and utterly about God if there isn't anything else there. And that's what's being said here. This is the kind of blameless that they are. Now what he says is, now, now look at this, okay? They've, they've, they've not defiled with women. They've kept their virginity. Now watch. See, look at the period of time in which they're doing this. Look at this. The 144,000 are sealed, and then it's seventh trumpet and Jesus and, and on the mountain. They have gone through all of this. And here's what's important. Everybody else failed. They bought into the deception. The 144,000 didn't. Which is why it says they sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures. No one could learn it except the 144,000 who are redeemed from the earth. Why can't anybody else learn the song? Or let me put it this way. Why do we break out in song? It happens in scripture all the time, but it happens here too. World War II is probably the last war that we had where there was just a definable huge thing where we just won. You know, the day that they signed the armistice, the war was truly over. Wasn't Vietnam with the you know the hangover of not really winning and so on and and this ongoing thing in Iraq and Iran and I'm not making any comment about that, but Iran I say Iran Afghanistan, okay, but but the point is, in, at the end of World War II, what did people do? What's the iconic image from it? People are celebrating so much. The one guy grabs the gal and gives her a big kiss, right? So this is the what we do is we break out in song. The Israelites get delivered from the Egyptians through the Red Sea. The Egyptians are drowned in that same Red Sea that they just walked through, and they're pretty happy about it. And what do they do? They sing. They got a new song that Miriam sings about, wow, God, look what you just did. It commemorates it. We remember it. We break out in song when we get victory. That's what the 144,000 have done. They went through this incredible period of time where there was every reason for them to fall away. And they didn't. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. You know, I, I, I got hung up on this. We got stuck over in Cleelum, and, and so I was playing with the sermon and just everything else. And I said, I asked everybody, I said, why, why did He phrase it that way? These are the ones who follow Christ. That's enough, right? 
These are the ones who obey Christ. These are the ones who love Christ. I got it. Don't you get the point? Why the words, wherever he goes? Wherever he goes. Those are odd words, aren't they? Do you think, let me put it this way. Do you think that in your pursuit of Christ, in your relationship with Christ, do you follow him wherever he goes? Oh. No, I don't, do I? But it's not just following wherever he goes in the physical. It's wherever he goes in the spiritual. Remember where they were found? On Mount Zion. This heavenly thing too. Let me, let me put it this way. In that chapter 7, when we first looked at who they were, they're called servants. What does a servant do with a master? Like if you're the king of England and you have servants, what do they do? They follow you everywhere you, you know, right? Do you, do you need to get dressed? Here, I'm putting on your clothes for you. Do you need to eat something? Here, here's your food. Do you need a food taken, a plate taken away? Okay, here's your plate taken away. Do you need something? What do you need? Do you need a book? Do you need, what do you need? See what I mean? What's a servant do? They follow the master wherever he goes and wait on him. That's what they do. Now just think about this for a second. We're all called to be slaves. None of us actually live like that, particularly not here in America. But we're called to be that. We're called to not just be slaves. Think of it as a servant. We're called to be following him around at every moment, waiting on his every want and need, everything that he would do. That's what we're called to do. See what I mean? Now, we don't do that, do we? But if we did do that, we would be following him wherever he goes, even in the spiritual realm. This breakthrough of the spiritual into the natural it isn't just going to happen in chapter 14 at the very end. It can be happening now. We can be wherever he is, even in the spiritual realm. Do you get it? I'm not saying we would disappear from earth. Understand it. Okay? But you see, that's the imagery that's going on here. What's God trying to communicate? Who these people are. What got them through all of that temptation, all that deception? What got them to the end to where... They are the redeemed of the human race, the first fruits for God and the Lamb. Can I say something? I love God with all my heart. And I try to love him with everything that's in me. But when I think about these 144,000, I am happy that they go first. I don't feel jealous of it. I don't feel lesser because of it. I'm really thankful that there were people that were able to go through all of that deception, all of that stuff, everything that happened, and that they were able to maintain something. And the reason why is because it lets me know that it's possible for me too. Did you hear what I just said right there? It lets me know that it's possible for me too. If I will just become a servant. Yeah, there may be stuff in my past, but my future is to be written. And I can get to a certain place with this. And I'm happy that these guys who actually did it from start to finish, I'm happy that they're the first fruits. They're the ones that are like unto what I'm to be and what God is actually making me. So here's the question. Did they, did they keep from sin because, this is good Reformed theology now, right? Okay, I'm going into you know, something you would hear at other churches. And, and I believe in Reformed theology, by the way, 100%. I just believe it's not 100% of the story. I believe there's a whole other 100% out there. Okay? 
And, the, and what I'm saying is, good Reformed theology would tell you the reason why these guys didn't sin is because God kept them from ever sinning. Now, I believe that that's absolutely true, and I'm going to make that argument here in just a little bit. But can I say, by looking at these words, can we say that? Because this is where we're told about how God sealed them. And here's what it says. Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we've placed the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, does it say anywhere there that what God was doing was sealing them from an, to not even be able to sin? Did he put them in a protective cocoon? It's not saying that, is it? In fact, if you want to know what it's saying more like, biblically, think about it this way. He's keeping them from being killed. You remember in Exodus... Remember when they're in the land and the, and, the, and the Egyptians are coming against them? In the final time, the Passover, what happens? They put a seal on the doors, a mark on the doors, blood on the doors, and the angel of death comes and doesn't kill them, goes over that house, passes over and destroys every other firstborn in the land. The seal on the head here is more akin to God is keeping them from being killed. Why? So that they can be a witness. I'm going to blow your mind here a little bit. I've been telling you a long time, the reason why God has the 144,000 sealed before he takes the Christians out is because he wants them to be a witness. And when I say that, it would be natural for you to assume that what I'm saying, and by the way, I was saying it, I was just slightly wrong, okay, which is different than being actually wrong, except there is no difference. But what I was insinuating, I didn't actually say it, so I think I was safe on that regard. God has protected me from myself all the time. Thank you, God. But what I, what I was insinuating was that these people were out on street corners with tracks evangelizing, a witness as in evangelists. And what they're trying to do is bring people to God all over the place, right? But that's actually never said, is it? Let me propose to you that they're a very different kind of witness than that. I'm not saying they're not out there talking to people about God and bearing witness to him. But I'm telling you, the witness that they carry is actually the judgment of all the rest of the world. Yeah, I, I, watch this. If all the world had gone into deception, if everybody had gone into deception... When God then judges them, he still has the right to do it. God can do anything he wants. Like I say, I'm good reformed theology. God gets to do anything he wants. If you don't like it, tough. Right? But I think that we misunderstand God when we say that that's how he does things because he doesn't. He does them through free will. He still is totally sovereign and still in control, and he does do, and I'm going to get to it in one second. But the bottom line is we need to understand something. God has always left a reason for every single person to know exactly how good and righteous he is. And what he has done with these 144,000, he's kept them from being killed. And then they go through everything else that everybody else goes through. And at the end of it, they still love God. And what he's saying to the whole world is, if you want to say that you're not culpable, these 144,000 prove you wrong. Because they made it. So could have you. You made a choice. They made a choice. Theirs was to keep the mark of God, the love of God, the worship of God in them. Yours was to put your hand to something else, to put your mind to something else. And now everybody can see that their judgment is just. Do you see the witness that they are to the world? Now, I've been saying something sort of being out of both sides of my mouth here. 
I've been saying on the one hand, God keeps. On the other hand, it's free will. You do understand, I get that those two are contradictory. It's either free will or God keeps. Predestination. No, it's both. Actually, mathematically, you can take the same formulas that the scientists are using to discover that there's other dimensions. You can take that same math and show that what seems to be contradictory to us in our three dimensions plus time is not contradictory when you simply add one more dimension. Two things that seem con contradictory in this realm are not. Utter free will, utter predestination, utter free will. I'm going to show you what that means in a practical way in our lives right now. And I'm going to do so by bringing up a person in our congregation who I am, I think is to be held up in high esteem. And I don't mean to build a big head on him. In fact, when I start talking about him, he's going to hate how I'm talking about him. But Spencer Chin is the son of Scott and Stephanie Chin. And Spencer Chin is one of these young men who, you know, you wish you would have been like that when you were his age. He's a freshman in a secular high school. And this, he just won an award amongst many he's going to win in his lifetime and many things that he's going to do. And the project that he did is Spencer's Smart Goals Vision Book for Language Arts, what we used to call English, for Language Arts. And he got an achievement award for this book and I assume for other things and so on. Now I want to show you his book because I want us to see something about how life could be how I wish it would have been. I'm sure there's probably a few people in here that actually were close to what Spencer was doing, but it would be the vast minority. I just want you to see this. Okay, now this is his table of contents here. And then he, it, the first section is memories, and then there's goals. I love the memories thing that he does here. And then there's a funny joke here, but let me just keep going. Okay, so his first thing, now this is a secular school, Now I want you to see the first page that he puts in his memories. He's saying, this is what's important to me, and now that I know what's important to me, these are the things that I want to be in my life. See? And the, what are the goals? And, and you're going to see all this. But I want you to see this. Church. As long as I remember, I have attended church. But as my pastor, Kurt, once said, the church is not a building. Rather, it's the people and relationships we have. And I want you to know something. Spencer never knew that I would ever see this. It was, we were on retreat. We were on retreat, and he was getting an award, and Steph needed to come back for the award, but it started snowing, and that's what kept us away for a whole other day. We got stuck on the other side. And so the point is she couldn't make it home, so he's getting this award, and I said, I'd love to see the book. And then I saw the book. And when I got done seeing the book, I literally was texting him, and I was saying, can you be my son? <laughs> <laughs> They've done all the really good hard work, and I just want to enjoy the accolades. Can I get that from you? And I do want to say something. I'm not showing you his work because he put his name, or my name, in his report, but if you ever want me to use your homework or your work product at work in my sermon, putting my name in there in a complimentary way would be a fairly helpful thing, I think. All right? Okay. So, so he goes on about, look, my church has been a huge part of my life since I was born. Some of my favorite people are from there, and I have many fond memories. Church is a place where I can be accepted for who I am. Thank God that people, young people in particular in our church, can say that about this church. I hear all the time about people talking about hypocritical and put, put, putting on a facade, and this is not that kind of a church. And thank God for that. And that's because of you guys. Amen. Amen. So thank, um, church is a place where I can be accepted for who I am, talk about deep topics. My church experience has definitely affected my walk with the Lord positively which there would be a lot of stories in other ways, unfortunately, and he has motivated me to be a man of God. 
Uh, that, that right there, you know, okay, can I buy you a car? <laughs> you know what I mean? Come on. And his folks are going, yes, because that saves us from having to buy him one. Because he's definitely the kind of kid that's going to deserve a car at 16 in one day. You know that's true. Okay, it's actually at the day of 16. Okay. All right, now he goes into sibling rivalry, and I can't go through all this. This is where he got excited about reading in second grade. Can I just say something? This is a freshman in high school who just put Dave Ramsey. How well do you think that's going to serve him for the rest of his life? This is phenomenal, okay? Mission trips, he talks about them, okay? Now he's going to get to goals. See, this is the stuff that I've learned that seems important to me based on what I've learned so far. And so now I'm going to go to this is what I want to be and this is how I'm actually going to get there. That exercise right there, boy, what a helpful one. So here's what he says. Marriage. I want you to listen to this. I want you to hear this young man because this is where I just went over the moon for him. I, I just, hearing a freshman talk so knowingly with such certitude. We're going to get to that in a moment, you know, what happens when you get older. But can we hear the way I think God wants us all talking about our lives? The certitude the certainty that he can get us there. I will be married by the time I'm 30 and will stay married until I die. I will accomplish this by dating my wife for at least a year, not having sex before marriage, and going to premarital counseling. Can I buy you another car? <laughs> I, now look, how am I going to accomplish that? See, I, this kid gets the award for me. I can take steps toward this goal now by learning from relationships now, not going too far with girlfriends, Learning how to treat women from my dad. Now, Scott, you have to buy him a car. <laughs> I guess that's the third car he's got, though, so, okay? Yeah. Okay. Kids. I will have two kids and be able to support them by the time I'm 35 and not before getting married. I will do this by not having sex before marriage, getting married, and learning about parenting. I can take steps towards this goal now by taking child development classes, studying hard so that I can get a well-paying job, taking notes on how I and my parents deal with me growing up. Now, Stephanie, you owe him a car, too. I think we're up to four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I will maintain my relationship with Jesus forever. I will achieve this by going to church, marrying someone with similar beliefs, and reading my Bible. I can take steps toward this goal now by going to youth group at church, doing daily devotionals, car number five, and praying. Okay? I mean, is he right or not? Would this help you? <laughs> yeah, at any age. We all ought to do our language arts assignment, okay? Debt-free. I'll be living debt-free except for my house by the time I'm 40. I'll accomplish this by getting a well-paying job, following the principles of Dave Ramsey, saving rather than spending. I can take, take steps toward this goal by getting a job, applying for scholarships, studying hard. Job. I'll have a job that helps others. I love that he puts that first. I'm going to get a job that's helping other people and can support my family by the time I'm 35. I'm accomplished by going to college, finding out what I enjoy, how I can apply that to helping others. I can, take, I can get to this by taking a variety of classes, applying for scholarships, making the most out of my high school education. Before I die, I'm going to write a book about the most important lessons I learned from my experiences, passing it on to the next generation. He's a freshman in school, and he's trying to pass on wisdom. You know why? Let's get really real. Because his parents have been passing on wisdom to him. And so he knows the value of it. 
I can take steps towards this goal. Uh, I will accomplish by experiencing the world, keeping a journal of my life experiences, finally writing the book. I can take these steps by starting a journal now, learning a lot in my language arts classes. A little suck up there, Scott, or <laughs> Spencer. Just a little suck up there. Okay? Making mistakes and learning from them. Awesome, huh? Awesome. That's what needs to go in a book. Not just the good stuff, but the stuff where you made a mistake and what happened. College. I will graduate from a four-year university with a bachelor's degree that will help me accomplish what I want to do with my life by the time I'm 25. I'll get there by working hard in both high school and college. I love this. Not screwing around once I get into college <laughs> and figuring out what I want to do with my life now. I can take these steps by applying for scholarships, studying hard, figuring out my major and what I want to do with my life. Last one. And can I say, card number six. I will go on a year-long trip by the time I am 60. I will accomplish by finding opportunities through my church, learning skills I can apply in the mission field, and saving up money. I can take steps now by saving $100 every birthday, participating in youth group mission trips, and learning a foreign language. Now, wow. I want to be you when I grow up. Okay? I mean it. I mean, is that just spectacular or what? Because, see, there's something else that happens to us in life. And, and Spencer, if you listen carefully to what I'm about to say right now, this will keep you from what I'm about to say right now. Okay? But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we, we, we're born and we put on a life. See? We, we take on a life. Okay? And, and, and that life, I don't want you to look at the garment underneath. That was to keep my shirt from getting what's about to happen, but... But what I want you to see is I'm putting on this life, and, and when I first put on this life, it is brilliant white, isn't it? I mean, isn't the choices that you're making when you're young and, and you're at his stage in life? And I gotta say, I was way behind you at that stage of life. I was already, you know, my path was already on a very, very different path. But bottom line is, is that, you know, even the best of us, okay? We start off, even the worst of us, I mean, start off with a certain bright whiteness to what we think our life is going to be. And then we find ourselves going through life and, and we get to places to where, you know, we didn't really even intend to do it. We were just eating and enjoying ourselves and all of a sudden, you know, we just started, you know what I mean? We just started dribbling on ourselves, right? You know, right? Didn't we? We just started just making a mess of things, right? Didn't we? I mean, isn't that what we did with our life? And and, you know, some of these things, you know, we take and we just, you know, this is, you know, we just kind of slather some crud onto our lives, right? Don't we? And so we just kind of take this and, and, and we're living our lives and, and you know, we, we make a mess of things and some of that was accidental at first, but then we get to where we're quite purposeful about it and we're putting this on here by choice because it was fun or it felt good or whatever it was. And some of those things actually are quite staining. Some of these things are actually, you see what I mean? This is, some of this stuff, maybe something could happen, but some of this stuff just stains us. Doesn't it? We even get to the place to where we start doing really, really stupid things. Like, you know, who would just eat butter? Going to the, going to the fair and eating a fried butter stick. It may actually be really good, but who the heck would even try that? Right? 
I mean, what you're doing with your life is, is that you're just, you're just doing things that are really stupid. You got your reasons. Now, there are other things that happen, too. And that is, you know, not everything that happens to you bad that influences you is your fault. Some of it, some of it is what other people do to you. And sometimes people just come up to you and they just take a dump on you. Can I say it that way? Do you see it? Okay. You, you, she's seeing all of it. You got to You got to quit now. She said, oh, no, I got on the stairs. Okay. Right? There's choices that we make. There's choices that other things, there's stuff that happens to us. And, and what happens is, is we get to a place to where our life doesn't look anything at all like that white thing that we had hoped it would be. And then, you know what I mean? We find Christ. And, and glory to God, you know? When you find Christ, what happens is, is that, you know, you get to a place to where, you know, he starts to clean you up, doesn't he? And, and you can do quite a lot, right? I mean, you, you know, you can take this and, oh, geez, I'm making that worse. But, okay. But, you know, you can start wiping this stuff off and, and you can get, you know, a lot of the peanut butter and, and a lot of that other stuff off. And, and you can actually do quite a lot of cleaning up. Okay, and if I were to take more time, and you guys get the analogy, but if I were to take more time, I could actually get quite a lot of this stuff off of me, couldn't I? Right? Because Christ is cleaning up my life, right? I'm making different decisions. I'm living a different way. And it, and it, and it looks a lot better, but the fact of the matter is, and the truth is, is that in the end, this is a mirror. In the end, I asked you the question at the very beginning, how do you think God sees you? And in the end, when you look in the mirror, life stains. It's been cleaned up a lot. You know, I could do something, and I, I would have done it, except it would have been even worse. I could go get red stain, the blood of Christ, and I could paint it on here, couldn't I? And it would, in fact, cover the vast majority of what you're now seeing as just solidness. It would, wouldn't it? The blood of Christ covers. It would do that. But when I looked in the mirror, I would still see those stains. I'd still see the time when I was really young and stole from my mother. That stained me. Maybe you betrayed somebody else. Maybe you had an affair. Maybe you, right? What are all the things that could happen in life that you would do that even though the blood of Christ covers it so that it wouldn't be seen by God, we still know that it's there. That's how we see ourselves. When I ask you how you saw yourself, I know that most people had some image like this, something that had stained them. See? And we know that the blood covers, and we know that God forgives, and we know all this kind of stuff. But the other thing that we do know is we are not the 144,000 who are blameless. It's just not who we are. And that's a lie. 
This whole thing is a lie. When we think that this is what God does and when he comes and paints the blood over this outside and everything else, there is a very real aspect of that that he does do. He does cover with the blood and he covers up those stains and, and all that kind of stuff. But the fact of the matter is when we think of ourselves like this, whether it's covered in the blood or not, we are thinking a lie. We are thinking a deception. The way that the word says it is this. Everyone who's been born of God does not sin because God's seed remains in him. He's not able to sin because he's been born of God. Uh-oh, I became a Christian and I kept sinning. So I'm in trouble. It says earlier in the same book, it says those who say they have not sinned are liars. They just don't get it. But the truth of the matter is what this is trying to say is something entirely different. What does God see when he sees you? Because you see, remember, this was the life that I put on. This is not who I actually am. When I'm made in the image of Christ, it's not in the physical body that that is. I don't look like God. If I look in the mirror or if I take a picture and put it side by side, I don't look like God. What makes me like God is that he has made me a spiritual being on the inside. This is what I look like to God. He sees all of this stuff and he sees a life that has been deceived, that has fallen into deception, that has been corrupted, that has been perverted, all of the things that Satan has done to try and take us away, all the choices that we've made. What he, yes, that's there, but that's not us. This is not you. When you accept Christ, you are, as Paul says, as a Christian, I do not understand what I am doing in this coat. In my life, I do not practice what I want to do. I do what I hate. So now I am no longer the one doing it. It is sin living in me. There is a thing that has attached that is of the world. And yes, we need to be doing everything we can to walk away from the sin that's happening in our life. Nothing I'm saying should give you license to say, oh, I don't have to worry about it because on the inside I'm here. Here's the truth. The 144,000 could have chosen to go away from God. And had they just messed around and messed around and messed around enough, it would have seemed like a reasonable thing to do to them, and they would have been lost too. But what they did instead was is they remembered who they were in God, and they threw away the crap. So that they could stand before him pure and holy. So they could stand before him his seed. Can God sin? Abstract? Yeah, of course he can do anything that he wants. No, he can't sin. He's holy, 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 holy. And you are his child. He has made you new and this is who you are. And here's the problem. Satan keeps us thinking that we're this and the spiritual thought goes from the spirit into the physical world of our life and choices. I'm already a screw-up. I may as well go ahead. I'm already sullied. Do you see, if you will put on the mind of Christ, if you will see how he actually sees you, 
then what will be motivating you will be pure and holy. Will be the white, glorious pureness of God. That's who you are. All that other stuff, dead and buried in the ground. This is the one. And because of that, we sing a new song. <laughs> right? One that people who don't have this can't sing. Because we say, I've been set free. <laughs> I have been made new. I am standing before God in his holiness. That he bought for me. Did he keep them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because he made them new. Yeah, he kept them. Did they have to make choices? Oh, you bet. <laughs> Could they have lost it? Yeah. Could they have sullied this too? Yeah. But can God ever lose a one? Can he? You need to be good reformed. You need to be more than just good reformed. But you need to be good reformed. You need to understand he's the one that chose you. He's the one that made you pure and white. And when he looks at you, this is what he sees. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, your people come before your throne in such thanksgiving and praise. In such, oh, I'm asking you right now, remember the image that you had in your mind at the beginning. Remember what it was. Now just see how that image going from the spirit, going from your understanding out into your life has been sullying even more so your life. Now, put in there the image that I just gave you. Pure and holy, white and shining, glorious. And now just see how that goes out into your life. Just permeates every part of it. Oh God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, you have made us sinless. You have made us unable to sin. You have made us and have kept us. And God, we say amen and hallelujah to it, and we walk in the fullness. We purpose to walk in the fullness of your glorious truth. Hallelujah. In Jesus' holy and precious name.